0: When we realize our problem is not our spouse, not our kids, not our boss, not the fact that we're not making enough money, not, 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 when we realize the enemy is within and when we start to calm the storm within, we find that peace, we find that answer, then we can really craft a life of meaning and purposefulness.
1: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Be More Well with me, Jeff St. Pierre. This is episode 17 with author, Georgetown professor, founder of Path North, and so much more, Jay Douglas Holiday. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to listen. Be More Well is a wellness-focused podcast where I speak with both physical and mental health professionals, athletes, coaches, musicians, trainers, and most importantly, people just like you and I. My mission here is to bring you information, knowledge, and stories from others about how they found their path to wellness so you can find your own personal journey. We're going to hear from people about their journey to wellness, as well as hearing from people who have great advice for everyone as they try to find their own path. I sincerely hope that you're able to find some inspiration from the stories that you hear right here on Be More Well week after week. Success. It's something most of us are searching for, right? Everyone wants to succeed in one way or another. So what does success mean to you? What does it look like? Well, success looks a little different to everyone because it can be based on what's going on in life. For example, how many people have you known who thought their life was over at 30 when they weren't married and didn't have kids? I can certainly think of a few. To them, a version of success was starting a family at a young age. I've also known a lot of people who view success as a high-powered job with lots and lots of money. You know, that job on the upper levels of the building with the corner office overlooking the city kind of thing. But one thing I tend to notice, and so does today's guest, is that people with these views of success never seem to be happy, even when they get that corner office, so to speak. Then they want an entire floor to themselves. When you ask most people how much money would make them happy, it's almost always double what they're already making. All of this, despite research that shows time and time again that more money does not necessarily add happiness to your life, but it does tend to take time away from your family, your hobbies, and the things that truly make you enjoy life. You might be surprised to know that some of the richest and biggest business people in the world are miserable. They've got all the money anybody could ever ask for, but they've sacrificed friends and relationships or time with loved ones to get there. That money they have, yeah, it can't buy that time or those relationships back. The work-life balance is so important, but it seems to be the first thing that people sacrifice when they think it will take them on to the next level. So my guest today is Jay Douglas Holiday. He's written a new book called Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. We had an incredible conversation about how to redefine the word success because it can mean so much more than all those traditional things that we brought up to believe. Before we dive into the interview today, I just want to take a second to ask you to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using. If it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio app, whatever, please subscribe so you'll be notified of future episodes. Also, please feel free to leave a rating and comment. Those really help the podcast powers that be noticed that people are listening and it could help others find be more well. Douglas Holiday, it is great to talk to you. How are you, sir? How are you, my friend? I am doing very well. Uh, Thank you for doing this, and thank you for being flexible with the uh, change in schedule. I wanted to make sure I had time to really dive into the book and pull some stuff out of it.
0: Absolutely. Oh, what a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Really appreciate
1: it. No, seriously, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I know we got connected through a mutual friend of ours, and I'm really glad she reached out because I I found reading through your book, which is called Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life, I found it so interesting. And and even though the book came out kind of during the pandemic here, which I'm sure was not what your (laughs) expectations were when you wrote it, there's so much in the book that I think actually ties into a lot of the emotions and feelings that people are facing right now.
0: Oh yeah, it's funny on a lot of these Zoom calls, and I've been with a lot of companies, uh, spending time with their top clients. And and when people ask me about you know what what does this moment mean, I said you know I didn't I didn't aim to do a book about a reset, but you know everybody's rethinking everything, success, raising children, expectations for children. Uh, when they can retire, almost everything is on the table for a a reimagining. And that's terrifying, but can be a good thing if you handle it properly.
1: Well, before we dive into this book here and talk a little bit more about the work that you've put together, Doug, why don't you tell people a little bit more about yourself, what your background is, and why you're a good person to have this conversation with?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I, I cite a lot of people in there that are recognizable people and it's not it's not just to drop names i figure if if people know that iconic names like dupont or rockefeller or steve case whatever are struggling with self-worth and identity and loneliness it almost like the 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 illusion that some people have it all together comes crashing down and so, so I think I've had, it's, it's kind of like the Hamilton musical. There's, a, I think, a song in there that talks about, I just want to be in the room. And I think the difference between me and some of these other people, like a David Brooks, who's a friend or Adam Grant, they're all great thought leaders. Uh, they're number one, they're much smarter than I am, but number two, I've actually been in the room really being in the conversation at the, at a, pretty significant level. So I think in a funny way, I bring kind of a an academic's eye, but a practitioner's experience to the party.
1: So one big thing that you talk about here, and really where I want to focus a lot of this conversation is just kind of this work-life balance idea, because I think that kind of thing has been lost for a lot of people, uh, especially over the last decade or so. I just think we've all gotten so engrossed in this idea of what success means and how much work we have to put into that. And I I really do think you debunk a lot of that (laughs) in your book, which is great. And hopefully people can take some stuff out of there. But you talk about a couple people right from the beginning that are very successful folks. Uh, One in particular that sold his internet company Minecraft for an ungodly amount of money, but still wasn't happy after he had that money. And there's one like one quote or phrase that I see in the book that says, "How did I get here?" and that just seems to be sort of an underlying theme throughout the entire book.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I juxtapose two people who had a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. One was the founder of Minecraft, sold it for two point five billion. And I start the book, as you know, with some of his tweets about, you know, I'm I'm here able to do whatever I want in a private island, partying with the rich and famous, never felt more alone than my life. And then you have, so we don't know how his story is gonna end, but it, it's, it doesn't look promising for a 35 year old to be introspective, but not knowing where to go. Then the other is, another friend of mine is Ted Leonsis, who owns all the sports teams in DC. The caps and the wizards and all. He talks about at 28 he had sold his uh technology business to Steve Case at AOL and for 60 million. And at 28, he was on a plane flying into Atlanta and the landing gear wouldn't go down. And he realized as he's sitting there preparing for maybe the end, he's he thought to himself, if I died now, I would not die happy. And he vowed to himself. That he, if he survived this, that he would go on a journey to find out how to bring happiness and more meaning to his life. These wake up calls, which we all have, it might be a divorce, a betrayal, a health scare, a kid that's addicted to opioids, whatever it is, these are wake up calls, as C.S. Lewis called these, you know, these are signposts that, in a sense, point beyond themselves. And if we allow these things, they will take us to a better place or they take us to a dark place. It's up to you.
1: In a way that a lot of people find themselves at that moment where they get that wake-up call, in a way, is because of this image that we have of what success is. We all seem to have an impression of what success is. but. Just because we have that impression doesn't necessarily mean that's the real way to get success. Like I I always joke. I I got married at 38 years old, which for a lot of people is late in life, you know? And I always used to joke with my friends because they seem to have that checklist. You know, it was go to college, get a degree. Okay, now you graduated. Now get the job. Okay, you've got the job. Now find the spouse. Now have the kids. And it was this life checklist, you know, and that was that was what right. was leading them to success. But, you know, for me, the path to success didn't look that same way in my mind. You know, yeah. I didn't need to do to go in that route. I could go in different paths to find that way.
0: Yeah. Which it says a lot about you, Jeff, because I think the problem with most of us, we have bought into either society's narratives or our parents' narrative. As you know in the book, I talk about we're all born into a story, which Peter Buffett, Warren Buffett's son told me that that you were born into a story. That story is dictating how you view success. If your parents said education, education is important, guess what? You're going to feel like a loser if you never finish college. If, if if financial security and never being in debt is what you were told since you were three or four, that's going to be a narrative. If there's a lot of anger growing up, so you you know all of these pictures we have of reality, we got from someplace. So what you need to do in my mind is pause, look at those things and say, now I have a choice here. Am I gonna live my father's view of success or my own? And it starts with truth. It starts with, as Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Step one is to examine your life and say, is this definition of success working for me? Are others who have pursued this happy? Do they seem to be finding joy and peace? So I think learning to be your own person is a a life journey, but a really important journey. Otherwise, we will merely be living someone else's version of who we should be, and we're gonna end up miserable. And that's why so many men and women in their 50s and 60s, it's kind of like that movie, a long time ago, they came out with Jude Love and others have Michael Caine started before. What's it all about, Alfie? You there's mm-hmm. a guy that was womanizing, had money, had the sports cars. And he says, is it just for the moment we live? What's it all about? And I think to have the courage to ask that question is the beginning. When you're lost in the woods, step one, decide you're lost. <laughs> Declare you're lost. Until you do that, you can't be found.
1: That's true. And I feel like so many people probably run into that trap where instead of declaring they're lost, they will just declare, you know, I, I know where I am. I'm going to keep going, you know, and, and yeah. I think a lot of people, they think like, okay, I've got a taste of what I think success is. And now I, I'm not happy yet. So I must need more.
0: Yeah. And, and the funny thing about that pursuit, it's never enough. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny, they used to ask this guy, Jim Barksdale, who was the head of uh, Netscape. He was worth hundreds of millions, and I think it was Forbes that would ask him every year, how much money would make you feel like you're really secure and you've made it? First it was 100 million, that was 250 million, that was a billion. And when he got to be, I think, the third wealthiest person in the world, they asked him, so you have all this money, you have the security, you have billions of dollars, you know, is it enough? And he said, well, for one day, just one day, I'd like to be richer than Bill Gates. But he said, that'll never happen. (laughs) And I thought, wow, we all, you know, it's funny. It is a weird thing that there, if you, if you pursue that as an end, it's never enough. There's always somebody smarter, richer, better looking, more accomplished on and on. And, So you have to, I think everything goes back to you. Are you content? Are you the best version of yourself? In the 30s, they had this thing, the London Times sent out to 100 famous people in England, this question, they had them all write an answer to this. What's wrong with the world? And people would write all these long treaties about economics or public policy or whatever it was, The literary critic G.K. Chesterton wrote his answer back on a postcard. What's wrong with the world? He simply put, I am. When we realize our problem is not our spouse, not our kids, not our boss, not the fact that we're not making enough money, not, 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 when we realize the enemy is within and when we start to calm the storm within, we find that peace. We find that answer. Then we can really craft a life of meaning and purposefulness that really is a life, as 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 Aristotle called it, of thriving. Of thriving. That's what we want.
1: Yeah, you know, the the idea of owning your story that you were just talking about, I just came across that in another podcast. They were talking about uh, an upcoming NFL rookie for this coming season, however that may look, and the coach that drafted him, and the coach was saying, one thing I loved about this kid before we drafted him is that when I would play back a video of a play that maybe didn't go right when he was in college, and I said, what went wrong here? He would always say, ah, I missed that, or I did that. And he said it was always him taking ownership of the problem. He never said, oh, well, that guy didn't do his job, so I got screwed. It was always, I missed my play or I didn't take the right step. And he said, that's what made me really want to pick this kid because I knew that he was going to work so hard to prove it, that he could do it, you know?
0: That is, you know, the only person we have the possibility of changing is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is in politics and in a whole culture now, it's all about blaming, assigning wrongdoing to somebody else. It couldn't possibly be me. I love this story about Abraham Lincoln, and I put it in the book. It might be apocryphal, but it makes a great point. I think it's true. Lincoln was there, and he was accused. You know, he was always ridiculed. He was tall and gangly mm-hmm. and awkward. He was not the most articulate, even though we think of him with the Gettysburg Address and all these things. But by the standards of debate and of that time, he was not, he was not Eastern education. Most of them went to Harvard, Yale, or some of these schools. He was, he, he was homeschooled, so to speak. So one time at the equivalent of a press conference at the White House, this reporter said to him, Mr. President, you have, get this withering criticism night and day, how do you withstand it? And he just paused and he said, I'm so much worse than they could ever know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Jeff, it's funny, I think about that all the time. When I want to get defensive, when somebody says, "Oh, you screwed up here, and did this," I realize I'm so much worse than anybody could ever know, and it's all—it's true. It's not like I'm not making this up. It's just—it's just true. I'm—I'm not—I'm not what I should be in so many areas, but that's okay because that's the beginning of change.
1: You mentioned something a couple minutes ago here. You talked about parents and how, for a lot of us, the story is, in a way, already defined. You know, we we believe our story may be defined by where we came from, how we grew up, the things that we witnessed when we were younger. And I know... Something that you talk to your students about at Georgetown, you mentioned this in the book. Uh First of all, full disclosure, I went to Villanova, so I know I'm going to catch a lot of flack oh, from ah. my uh, from my friends for interviewing a Georgetown professor, great by the way. Great basketball, great <laughs> <laughs> basketball. A nice rivalry between the two of our schools there, right? Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I do like what you ask them when you talk to them about your their parents and have the lights gone out for the parents. Can you talk more about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. I I, I uh, start the class uh, because the class is on meaning. It's very similar to my book. And these are MBA students. I didn't want, I didn't want to teach in the philosophy department or humanities. I wanted to be in the belly of the beast, talking about what really matters. And they seem to be really responsive. But the first day of class, I said, "How many of you would say the light has gone out, particularly for your fathers?" And I'd say at least half the class raised their hand. And I said. I mean by that no meaningful relationship, no mojo, no passion about almost anything. And I said, the purpose of this class is to give you the tools so that someday if one of my three boys is teaching your your son or daughter, your son or daughter would not raise their hand because they'd say, my dad has a life of meaning and thriving. The principles, as I lay them out in the book, of thriving are really knowable. They just need to be practiced and integrated into our life.
1: It's interesting because I do think that in some way, and maybe it's a backwards way, but I think my story has in a lot of ways been laid out by my parents. My parents did a great job with what they were given. We didn't have a lot of money. They worked really hard to provide for the for their kids and and for the family. Uh-huh. So I have no criticism of them, but I always told myself I wanted something different, you know. So I did things yeah. a lot of a lot of ways differently than my parents. Uh, and, and so even though I'm doing the opposite or trying to do the opposite of what they did I feel like I'm still kind of kind of riding that wave from my parents you know what I mean?
0: Uh, absolutely and Jeff that's that's a great observation yourself because I think we either buy into their story or we we rebel against it. Freedom comes when we can pick and choose. When you are in a you are in a position where you can say, you know, this this definition's okay. This piece of the puzzle is okay. But first, you have to become your own person and realize what are the drivers in your life? Why are you just, why are you never enough? When you ask somebody, it's funny when you you start getting this thing and you ask, you give somebody a compliment, they always say, oh, that was not that great. And, you know, it's so much of the way they were brought up that, oh, you got an A minus. Jeff, why didn't you get an A? You know, it's like... So it's like if we've grown up with this, I'm never enough, guess what? We're never going to feel enough. And guess what else? That's how we're going to raise our kids. It says in the Old Testament, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the third and fourth generation. These things don't go away. They're transmitted through generational.
1: You mentioned a second ago the eight practices that you have in your book, and we've already kind of touched on a couple of things here, but one of the big ones that seems to, even though it's basically number two of your practices in the book and maintain deep connections in your core relationships, that story comes up in a lot of the different practices that you offer and it's about uh, you talk about loneliness being very detrimental you talk about connection to not only relationships in your life but also your community and different people around you that stuff especially nowadays with people being a lot more secluded uh with the pandemic and all of that it, it seems like it's so much more important to recognize how detrimental not having those connections can be
0: We are a lonely populace. Like in the 70s, there was a book written by Vance Packard called A Nation of Strangers. Fast forward in the 90s, Robert Putnam at Harvard wrote a book called Bowling Alone*. He used bowling as a metaphor, used to be a team sport, used to be very much a part of the central to a community, bowling leagues. If you go to a bowling alley now or a movie theater, interesting, half the people are alone at least. PTA attendance is way down. And Putnam is describing these things. These are a reflection of a society that's getting increasingly fragmented. Vivek Murthy, the last uh, surgeon general, he, he identified not smoking, not obesity, but loneliness as the major health crisis of our time. So the pandemic has only exacerbated this. Suicide is way up. So many people don't have a friend. They don't have anyone they can confide in. <clears throat> and we we think we're connected because of technology, but the people really know us. Do we really have people for the journey that accept you and are there for you? That's that that takes a real investment in vulnerability.
1: Jimmy Kimmel said on his show many years ago when Facebook started to take over the world and to get a lot bigger and he was talking about people who thought they had a lot of friends because they would have 3 or 400 friends on Facebook and he was said you don't have 3 or 400 friends go ahead on Facebook and tell people you need help moving then you'll find out how many friends you actually have
0: <laughs> that's great that's exactly right you know this idea of we're all so connected And what we've done in a funny way, Jeff, is we've turned relationships into a commodity. I always say to my class, don't use the term networking around me. Because what networking implies is this amazing mystery of relationships is turned into a commodity Mm -hmm. where I want to relate to you so that I can use you for my purposes. You know the wonder of this thing if you the measure you give is the measure you get if you care about people it will come back to you it will come back to you but if you use people that you'll you'll get the fruit of that too people won't trust you why is he calling oh i know he wants something
1: what do you say to people that, uh, as as you just said, if you care about people, it will come back to you. What do you say to people, though, that have a hard time waiting for it to come back to them? It doesn't always happen instantaneously. So sometimes you can put all yeah. the effort into it, but not necessarily see the return. And, and that can be frustrating to some people.
0: It can be frustrating, but you have to take the long view. And I think you get it from other places. If you were a giver, it comes back to you. It might not be from that very person, but people will sense that about you and they want to contribute to that. They want to be helpful and they, they will, they will do, they will do things that are amazing. They will, they will encourage you. They'll show up for you. I mean, I bring, I'm ready to start my MBA class again and I bring all these rock stars and chairman of Johnson and Johnson, the chairman of young and Rubicon, all these global companies. And they say to me when I was, when we were doing this in person, they'd fly down at their own expense. and They'd spend the day with the students. Why did they do that? Doug? And I said, well, I rarely ask them for anything, but I try to show up for them. And when you do that, when you do ask, they want to be there, but it should be almost a five to one ratio. It's funny. This guy, John Gottman, who is a relationship expert, very well known, G-O-T-T-M-A-M, teaches at the University of Washington. He has studied relationships and what makes marriages and relationships work. And he calls it, it's kind of a five to one ratio. And it, I find this exceedingly hard, but I think he's right. He said for a relationship to really thrive, you have to have five interactions where you're giving to everyone you get. Hmm. Wow. You think of that in a marriage, how hard that is to think about your spouse all the time and give and give and give and hope you get one thing back. But that's the ratio. He says, otherwise you deplete, you don't have relational capital. He can tell by meeting with a couple for 30 minutes, whether they're going to make it, whether they have this treasure chest of built up goodwill that comes from just doing things for each other all the time. And that's true in every relationship. Being attentive, caring about what they care about, you know, about their children, knowing their names, knowing their challenges, asking about them.
1: It's amazing sometimes how, <laughs> I hope this comes out right, how difficult life can be to navigate. You know, like you just said, it takes five to one. And for a lot of people, that sounds like a lot of work, you know, and I was interviewing the author of a book. I think the book was called The Power of Bad uh, came out a few months ago and largely talking about how negative uh, things in our life stay with us a lot longer. And they have a ratio. I think it's four to one where it takes four really positive experiences to outweigh one bad experience because your brains are just kind of wired to remember those negatives. And it's just another it's like it just seems like it's so much work to have that happy life you know but no you're right but it's worth it
0: but it is and Jeff you're you're raising a great point because I have a whole a whole section in the book on gratitude and why that's important neurologists tell us that you need to be grateful to really Mm. identify positive things like none of us need to make a list of the things that suck in our life that aren't working we we're living with those all the time you have to fight to put down every day, what am I grateful for? The small things, a a cup of Italian dark roast coffee, write it down. So I urge people to write three or four of these things every day. You might not make it, maybe it'll be three times a week you'll do it, but at the end of the year, you'll have hundreds of these things. They affect your brain, they affect the way you think. I, I think, this is a powerful idea you become what you think about if you want to know why you're cynical why you're negative why you're caustic it's because what you think about are those kinds of things put in your brain the positive the hopeful the thing the blessings in your life and it'll change you it changes you physiologically and emotionally
1: Mm, that is something I've been hearing a lot more about, especially the the writing down of the things you're you have gratitude yeah. for. It, it's definitely something I'm trying yeah. to start to work into my own life. I just keep hearing that from so many people, and I, I haven't yeah. I haven't dove into it just yet, but it's on my list of things that I need to start you know, doing I, for sure.
0: Yeah, I have right here. Yeah, I, I thought I'd just show you this real quick. Sure, but this is the thing I have. Like I do it every year. This is a so it has 2020 at the top. Okay. And I just write every day in small letters, like I'll have a uh, new beginning and hope, uh, you know, and I'll have, uh, I met this wonderful guy named Roosevelt, simple things, Hayes' house project, my son is doing better, you know, a chat with uh, Jillian in San Francisco, you know, I have all these things. And I, you know, I'm on the second page now. I'll probably fill up another page by the end of the year or two. And you don't have to write a long thing, just a couple words and a couple things. But every year, then at the end of the year for me, I know this is stupid, but I laminate them. Okay. (laughs) I just have (laughs) But I have them sitting around. It's like it reminds me of all these wondrously good things that happen.
1: That's awesome. I I do really like that. And that's, like I said, it's something I'm going to start doing myself because I do think that is so important. Uh, another one of your practices, Doug, is, is talking about risk. And for a lot of people, safety uh, is what they crave. They crave the safety net. They don't want to take the chances. But you say that having risk in your life is actually a really good thing that can help you keep moving forward.
0: No, I just had breakfast with some guys. And one guy's in his 80s. He was a tennis player. And he said, "Why well, I like being with younger people is all the people that I meet with now, my old friends, they're so set in their ways, they won't try anything new and do things. And it's funny, um, this palliative nurse, Bonnie Ware in Australia, she she was with people at the end of life and she ended up re- writing a book about it. But what was interesting, when she talked about the regrets of those the dying, if number one was always they would have they wish they would have risked more, mm. they would have tried things, they wouldn't have said, Wow, I can't do this, or I'm not going to move there, I'm not going to take this trip, or whatever. So, what I think people associate with risk, full hearted, crazy thing, it's not that it's like, you know, I've always wanted to go to Niagara Falls, put that on the calendar. Why don't I do it? Why do I just Say, I can't do it. You're never going to have enough money to do it. Just go freaking do it. So put these little things down. They start changing. I had a, a Mexican guy in this organization I started called Patno. He's a Mexican entrepreneur. He was saying that he was there and he heard this thing that we're talking about with taking risks. And all of a sudden, a, a woman came up to him, an older woman, and said, um, they were talking, and she says, what are you all about? He says, well, I, I've made a lot of money, but I want to make a lot more so that I'm really secure and all that. And he said, but she, she, he said, I work all the time. And she says, let me tell you one bit of advice, young man. And he said, what? She said, just say yes to everything people ask you to do. He said, what? Yeah. She said, try it for a year. It'll change your life. This guy, and I was just with him in San Antonio right before the pandemic, he stood up in front of our path, i was made about 200 leaders. He said, my life has been changed. I met that woman here a year ago at our annual gathering, and I've been saying yes. I went to Iceland. I would have never gone to Iceland. I've done this, I've done that. It's changed my life. I feel alive in a way I never have. Just say yes.
1: No, that's great. And I think, you know, the word risk can be scary to people, but like you just said, it doesn't have to be a risk. Like you're necessarily going to jump out of an airplane or you're going to quit your job. I mean, it might be that for some people, but it's not necessarily that. I know for me over the years, I've always found myself at the end of the year, having a bunch of extra vacation time because I'm so nervous about taking it earlier in the year. Is this the right day? Or is there someone that's going to fill in for me? I got to get this work done. And then I end up with this abundance of time off that I just feel like I waste at the end of the year, uh, not. Doing what I want to do, it's become a goal of mine now just to say, you know what? No, I have earned this time, I am taking this time off, and I'm just going to go with it. We're going to do something just to use this time and use it the best way we can.
0: Uh, that is fantastic. You know, I think somehow we have defined to get back to what you, we initially talked about, Jeff. We define success in weird ways. Busyness is one of those. Mm-hmm. When I somebody will call me up and say, So how are you doing, Doug? Great. Oh, I bet you've been really busy and traveling a lot. Because they, it's a compliment. They're almost defining success with busyness. So for somebody to say, you know, my goal is to take every vacation day. In our crazy manic culture, that can, are you lazy? Do you not like your job? Are you not into this? It's kind of a weird deal. In other cultures, they love that. I mean, you go to France, they take off two months a year and they kind of like it. <laughs> they're, they're they're enjoying it. So, so what is it about us? We have defined success by busyness, by external metrics. It's not by peace of mind and heart and richness of relationships.
1: And that that's really why, yeah.
0: that's why the definition of success, it's so important to find out what is what was your family's definition? How did they define success? because that'll give you a lot of clues about your own. How do you define success? And then the third is to pivot. What would you like your definition to be? A, A thriving family, peace in your life, more experiences. Wouldn't it be great? And write those down. When you write something down, all these things with goals, everyone has intentions, but if you write down your intentions, the possibility of achieving them goes up like 80%.
1: One thing that I've learned over the last couple of years, as I've tried to get more peace in my life too, is there are so many things that I wish we had been taught when we were younger. You know, and I never had a class in high school, we'll say, about success, where it would tell me that success could be a very happy family and peace of mind, and ha- like that. You're always taught, you're always pushed towards this belief that success is money and power and all that, and and there is so much more to success than just having that. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And, uh, if you're not at peace yourself, all those externalities don't matter. I mean, it's a weird thing, but there was a study done about how much money, um, is enough to make you happy. But beyond that, it doesn't increase your happiness. And it's surprising the number Mm
1: $70,000
0: beyond that. It might be great. You might be able to buy more things and all, but happiness does not change at all. does not incrementally go up after that amount.
1: When I first heard that uh, statistic, it was fascinating to me. It blew my mind. I was like, I'm actually kind of (laughs) close to that. And uh, it's scary because you still think there's so much more. You're mentally, so many people are mentally trained to think that it's a million dollars or it's $10 million or whatever, but it doesn't need to be that to still be a very happy and successful person.
0: Well, you know what's interesting—the other, the corollary to that, when they ask people, I don't care whether you make twenty thousand a year or two million, how much would make them happy and secure? Everyone, whether they're making two million a year or twenty thousand, mentioned double what they were making. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, there's this elusive quality, you know, success and peace of mind and happiness are always beyond. It's more, more, more. And uh, it's very hard to kind of live simply, you know, and just just try to be a, you know, so many of these things. Uh, there was something I came across recently, I forgot who said it, said we should not measure happiness by addition, but by subtraction. Hmm. The less, you, less things you... As you can do without more and more things, you're going to be freer and freer and freer.
1: So the the last principle or the last practice that you talk about in your book, Rethinking Success, is to work to leave a legacy for others. And but, I I love this phrase, and I want you to talk more about what you mean with that.
0: Yeah, legacy. You know, it's funny. There's a there's a great piece that uh, my friend David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, wrote. He he differentiates between resume virtues and eulogy verses. resume virtues are the things you know where i went to school my net worth my kids my house my houses my travel all these externalities the the um virtues when after you die you know your eulogy are who you were as a person did he care did he show up you know what was what was the real story and and the intrinsic value of this person. Most of us spend most of our time on the resume virtues and not on the eulogy virtues. So I'd say, to me, eulogy is for some, our, our, you know, our legacy is for someone else to, to, to say about us. But I do know we need to invest in people, uh, giving, gratitude, and then that translates into a legacy of meaning. And you know, you what do you want your kids to remember? You want your kids to remember that I had a father or mother that was for others, that were selfless, that really had peace in their life. Not that they bought another car or they had a great vacation. Maybe that's that's fine, but it's not, we really want to make, they showed up for me. They, they forgave easily. They were always my champion. They're the kind of things wow you want your kids to remember. And but it's never too late to change your your legacy. I I tell that great story about uh, no, Mr. No, Ludwig Nobel who was in Paris. To his shock, he opened the the daily Paris newspaper, and the front page it said Ludwig. Nobel is dead, the merchant of dead, death is dead. Because the Nobel family had invented dynamite, which had enabled epic killing on scales that had never been seen before. Led to World War I and the killings that could go on and on. But what the writer didn't realize, it was not Ludwig that had died, it was his brother in Southern France that had died. So Ludwig, this was a wake-up call for him, like the two guys that I profiled at the beginning of the book. This was a wake-up call for him. He determined he was gonna change his legacy so that that headline would be different. Hence, we have today the Nobel Prizes, the Nobel Peace Prize, which celebrate the arts, virtue, great accomplishment, and enriching the human soul. You can change your legacy.
1: I love that you bring that up. I love that you talk about being able to change it. I love that you say it's never too late because I do think there are so many people that find themselves in a trap and they feel like, well, it doesn't matter now. I'm already here. I can't change anything, especially as we start to get a little bit older. That becomes more yep. evident. You know, maybe, maybe you're getting ready to retire or your kids are already grown. You think, well, this is now my life. But no, you can still change what that story yep. is going to look like.
0: Absolutely. Never stop growing. That's the thing. You want to have this, not a fixed mindset, but a pliable one where we're constantly wanting to grow and change and experiment and be teachable. We, we just have to be open to being teachable and learning. Oh, it's fantastic to be that way and not be defensive and think you have all the answers, but really be open to change and show up for things that are uncomfortable. I went down to the Black Lives Matter um, March, just to experience it. I just wanted to see what was going on. I mean, we need to show up and learn and find out. So when when my friends asked me, what is going on in this cultural moment with all this thing with Floyd's death and all that? You know, I don't know if I have answers people are telling me. I said, you probably don't. This is a time to listen this is a time to ask good questions. I said, if you don't know what's going on today uh, and you think the reality for people of color is the same as yours next time you're at the grocery store behind a man of color, particularly in his middle age, ask him if he has sons. If he does ask him the next question. Have you ever had a conversation with them about what to do, his, ask his boys what they do if the cops pull them over. Mm-hmm. Everyone, I guarantee, has had that talk. I have three boys. I've never had that conversation. Right? There are two realities in America and we need, as white privileged people, not to be defensive, but just to learn, what is it like to have had a great uncle that was lynched? I just want to understand the, the horror and the pain and the fear that comes with that story.
1: We we were talking earlier about loneliness and how social media can make us feel even more lonely despite the fact that we think we're more connected to people. And I I feel like even in this cultural moment that is becoming so much more evident because so many people are willing to sit on their phone or their computer or whatever and get into a shouting match with someone over the computer through some social media versus actually going outside and having that conversation or witnessing life as it's happening and experiencing the world around them. They're so quick to jump on there and and post some angry thing, you know, without actually getting out into the world and understanding what's going on all around them.
0: No, you're you're right. That's where I keep saying, The only person you can possibly fix is yourself. And so much of this anger is inward, but we direct it's much easier for me to get mad at my spouse or my kids or someone else when really I need to pause and reset and say, wow, look at me. I I need to become a better version of me.
1: Well, Doug, this has been a, an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I mean, there, there's so much in this book. Again, it's called Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. And uh, it's really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And uh, I think I'm going to take a lot of practices out of this into my daily life now and really try to move forward. Because as we said at the very beginning, if someone wasn't listening the entire time, success can mean so much, but I feel like for so many people, there's just that one definition that we've all kind of fallen into, but there are so many different levels of what success can be. And when you open your mind to that, man, life can be very different.
0: Oh my word. You're absolutely. It's once you open this up and realize you don't have to have all the answers, you don't have to fix everybody. You know, when you keep coming back to me, How do I become the best version of me? That's when people say, what's the most important thing I could do for my country or my family? I'd say become the best version of you. Mm. It's it's simpler and harder than we can ever imagine because we think we have to fix the country, ourselves, our companies, our world, our children, our spouse. No, that's too much work. Just work on you. And the fruit will be changed relationship with everyone.
1: Well, that right there is a huge piece of advice. So I'm glad we're going to kind of end right there, Doug. Before we do go, though, uh, where can people go to find out more about you and what you're working on?
0: Yeah. So uh, I'd say two things. There, There's something in my book. I don't, I've never heard of this. We called a landing page, okay. <laughs> which is Doug Holiday, H-O-L-L-A-D-A-Y.com. And it'll have a lot of the interviews I've done with different people. And the book, You know, Rethinking Success, they can get on Amazon. It's published by HarperCollins Collins in different ways. And um, it's a pleasure. I There's also a website. I started a nonprofit for leaders that find themselves disconnected and lonely. And it's called um, Path North, mm-hmm. P-A-T-H-N-O-R-T-H. And... It's we explore together the unintended consequences of success, which can be isolation and disconnection.
1: Well, so much great stuff, Doug. And and, uh, I really appreciate you taking some time. I know I I held you up here a little bit, but uh, so much great information that I hope people take with them. And uh, thank you. I I wish you the the most success and the most happiness as you continue (laughs) on.
0: (laughs) Well, and you as well, my friend. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it.
1: Big thank you again to Jay Douglas Holiday for giving us some time. If you want to learn more about his work, you can check out his book, Rethinking Success. It is a great read and really interesting stuff. It's definitely put a lot of things into perspective for me. And thank you for listening to episode 17 of Be More Well. Don't forget to subscribe and be sure to follow us on social media at BeMoreWellPodcast on Instagram and Be more Well on Twitter.